And I think that's the that's the number one big learning I got from high Q that was it's a very hard pill to swallow because it feels as though you're being replaced. But in reality, it's it's you've done such a good job of building out the infrastructure. It's time to now pour gas in the fire. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Clearview Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Xander Oltman, CEO of Scope, Inc. How are you doing today, Xander? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty fine. It's a nice sunny day here in Hawaii. So tell us a little, a little bit about Scope, Inc. What are you guys doing? Yeah, so Scope partners with software vendors like Square, Plaid, Argyle, Shippo, um, you, know, you name it. Uh, pretty much API and no-code companies to help get their customers live and getting the most value out of the products um, that they're selling. Um, so, for example, we, you know, Argyle, for example, last week, you know, sent over a, a couple of customers on the Scope platform. Those customers get connected and matched with an expert on the Scope platform. Um, and then from there, they help get Argyle implemented up and running and, and making sure that the customer is, is using Argyle to its fullest, uh, fullest possible capability. Okay. So then you're, you're basically, you're providing like a matching engine for like experts in these like Ar- Argyle and Plaid, um, who can help people get, get up and running. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and we use a, the, the marketplace model just because we, you know, we, we do work with a handful of vendors, a ton of vendors, um, and what we've noticed, and this is something that I've noticed over the years, is that doing professional services internally um, is really, one, not cost effective, and it's also a lot of headcount to manage. So the original idea kind of came from being able to abstract that professional services team away from the company, but then also realizing that because if you're, if, if you're abstracting professional services out of the way, um, you, know, you can also add in additional services that you don't necessarily get with a historical, you know, a traditional professional services team. For example, um, a, uh, a square merchant, like a, your favorite taco shop down the street, may need a square online store built. So they'll get matched with an expert on the scope platform. Um, so we'll have an expert that implements the square online store for that taco shop. And then we'll also have another expert that might provide some SEO services to help drive more traffic to the website. So it's not just implementation um, and getting that customer live, but it's also getting the most value out of the product that the customer can now do using scope. Right. Okay. So you're, you're abstracting out this like service providing layer and then you're able to provide all kinds of other services wrapping mm-hmm. that as well as the matching. That's exactly right. Okay. Great. What, what got you into this space? Yeah. So before I started scope, um, I started a, a, another business within the founding team um, of a company called HiQ labs and, and HiQ is a people analytics platform. Um, and so when we started with just four of us, it was, you know, pretty early days when we were running into some kind of getting customers live issues as any startup at that age does, uh, aged stage. Um, and so what's required by the whole team is getting customers live and what do you ever got to do? So that means pulling in folks on the product team, pulling in folks from the engineering team. Um, and as we started to scale past the four, four first of us, um, to, you know, the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 employees, 
we also were scaling our customers up, but also needed to kind of get a little bit more, um, a little bit more strategic in how we use customer success and professional services. And so um, we ended up hiring a whole professional services team just to get our customers live on the platform. Um, and, and that was kind of the original germ of the idea for Scope. And, and really what I saw there was this asymmetrical relationship with when deals were coming in and when our professional services team would basically get called off the bench to come up and, um, you know, do some implementations, get those customers live and then kind of sit back down. And so that kind of piqued my interest in this, in this kind of interesting asymmetrical relationship that, um, you know, product and sales teams have with professional services teams when they're done internally. Um, mm. There was doing some consulting work and, and especially with a, a company that had a bunch of third party systems integrators that they were using um, and realized the process there was also fairly broken just on connecting the right expert with the customer. Um, right. So that was kind of the final piece to scope. And then from there, started digging around and um, put an ad on Craigslist and actually got a bunch of software implementers for like 40 bucks an hour and, and kind of tried to match them up with a software vendor um, that I just called up. And I think the first one was Plaid actually. Um, and then from there, they were like, sure, we'd love to you know, use some of these experts that you found to get up and running. And then from there, that's pretty much how the business got started. Nice. So tell me a little bit more about that asymmetry that you pointed to a moment ago. There was like an asymmetry between sales and implementation um, software services. There was something interesting in that, and I kind of wanted to double click on that. Yeah. So the asymmetry there really comes from... Um, if I'm if if I am a a professional service individual within a company, um, and as the product for the company starts to expand, so I think let me actually step back. I think Salesforce is like the perfect example of this. Um, so historically, when Salesforce first got started, they used a lot of these professional services teams internally um, to be able to get those customers live and get sales early Salesforce configured. Um, what they realized fairly quickly is that as the product expanded and as it needed to become more complicated to serve a larger market, they also then needed to scale professional services teams up alongside the product. Um, and that then quickly becomes a, a managerial nightmare because you're growing mm -hmm. your, your team um, pretty much one-to-one -one with the, the, the new features and functionalities of the product. Okay. Yeah. So, so you've got like a growth asymmetry as the, as the rest of your company is scaling exponentially, you're only able to scale your professional services team so fast and eventually you hit. Exactly. Barriers. Right. And then, yeah, okay. you eventually end up with, you know, professional services being the majority of the employees that you have on staff and that's not what any tech company wants to do. So what Salesforce did is they, as many other companies at that time did, they, they then spun up like a, um, like a partner ecosystem um, and historically partner ecosystem was really focused around referral and reselling as well as some, some systems integrators that were in charge of, you know, bringing deals to the table, but also getting those customers up and running mainly like consulting firms like Deloitte, Accenture, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, but what you start to realize is that, um, you know, there's a huge gap between when you can actually go from doing professional services internally to having a full fledged partner ecosystem where, You've got referral and reselling partners, you've got implementation partners, all that kind of stuff. And, and that really happens once you cross like $100 million in revenue, just because there's not enough business going around for everyone um, to be able to make it interesting for those third parties, those folks in the partner ecosystem. So 
kind of combining all of this together with the, the asymmetrical relationship I'd mentioned before, um, what you start to see is this kind of group of companies that are one, not able to serve their, their customers unless they have professional services. So as they want to expand into the market, they, they either need to expand professional services or they need to minimize the amount of features and, and rollouts for the, the products that they're, they're selling and, and building. So what you start to see is, okay, if, if you can become a, let's call it a third party expert for, let's use Q as an example, um, you know, the, the product is there, the, the volume maybe isn't there yet. So you can now become an expert for Q. You can become an expert for Square. You can become an expert for Plaid, for Shippo, for Argyle. So you can actually expand um, as a single individual expert, the amount of companies that you can be an expert for. So what you start to see here is, you know, companies don't have to now pay that, that professional services individual full-time because it's actually coming out of their pocket. That's one. Two is these experts now have a way to generate enough work to be able to sustain the lifestyle of being a expert or being a uh, implementation professional. Hmm. So, so where are you in this journey now? Um, like how, how far have you guys reached towards your, your mission? Um, I mean, we're not even close <laughs> to the, mm-hmm. to the end goal. Um, I mean, where we're at now, we've got 14 employees. Um, we're based in San Francisco. Um, we work with All local employees, uh, mix. It's mainly San Francisco though. Our, our product and, um, executive team are all based in San Francisco. Um, we have some engineers that are, um, in, in parts of Europe and uh, a couple based in Texas. Uh, but the majority of the executive team and the product team are based in San Francisco. Um, but I think for where we're at today is we've raised 3.4 million so far. We pretty much started in, um, gosh, we really went to market with like our first MVP about a year ago. Um, and have been, you know, fighting our way, uh, just, just growing the business month over month, um, pretty significantly, but trying to get to that point where, um, you know, we can develop that go to market playbook and that sales playbook that's very repeatable and and we're close. We're really, really close to that. So, um, you know, historically for us, it's just been heads down on product and find, trying to find product market fit. And we've been fortunate enough to be pulled into the market as opposed to trying to wiggle our way in and kind of figure out what to build next. Um, so we've, we've developed a really nice, you know, part of the world for us. And now it's up to us to take advantage of, um, you know, the market that we've identified here. And, uh, so that's, that's kind of what's coming up next is, um, kind of going beyond our initial kind of product rollout. And and then how do we then scale up the go-to-marketing and continue to increase our growth? Nice. Yeah. What are, what are the biggest points of uh, friction that you're experiencing right now? Um, gosh, for right now, it's, it's a lot of it is just like getting the features locked down that the customers are, it's, it's actually prioritizing our feature list, to be honest, um, which is a, a hell of a task that our head of product, um, is, it's been, has been, uh, asked to do. And, um, reason why it's difficult is because customers want a lot of different things from us. And so it's up to us to figure out what are the most important ones that are going to help us, you know, increase our, um, you know, our user numbers also increase just the amount of projects, decrease the amount of match time. 
um, mm-hmm. from you know customers getting matched with the right expert. Um, so all that stuff. So I think that if I had to you know put it very cleanly, I would say the number one thing is identifying the most immediate priorities for our our vendors, our customers, and our experts, putting those into the product roadmap. Yeah, it can be hard to tell people no. For sure. It's very hard to tell people no when they're willing to pay you. <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what's what have you learned from from having a previous startup and then moving into this one? What what have you been doing differently on this one that you learned lessons from in your previous company? Yeah, I think for where we sit today or where where Scope sits today, um we really sit in in this core need that businesses have. It's not a want. Um, it's a need, and it sits in the in the core business um, kind of subset. And, and what I mean by that is our product is something that is actively used every single day. Um, and so for us, it's 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 the real big difference here from scope and IQ is that, you know, having a product that is relied upon from multiple parties every single day requires a huge, um, you know, is a, is a huge bar for us to leap and continue to leap every single day. Where at Haikyuu, you know, we had a fairly large, um, you know, enterprise level product. It was used often, um, but it wasn't like a daily active user uh, type of type of product. And it didn't need to be really. Um, and so I think the, the big learning from, from Haikyuu to Scope is figure out what that daily product is, figure out what that thing is that, you know, a business is going to rely on to either help them grow their market or help close their customers quicker and help, you know, help them make more money. Um, And so I think that's the big difference here in in that learning of be be mission critical, uh, I think is the number one, number one learning I have. Yeah. Yeah. And the ways, the ways that mission critical can mean different things in different contexts, Mm -hmm. contexts. Uh, on, you know, on different aspects of the business. What about a, What about a personal, like what, what did you do in, in Haikyuu that, what, what's something that you did with Haikyuu that you didn't do with Scope or that you did do with Scope because it just hurt too much to have made this a particular mistake? I'd say, you know, leave the ego at the door. I think that's the, that's the number one, um, that's the number one thing. Mm. What's um, what's an example of uh, of where that showed up for you? Yeah, so at, at Haikyuu, for example, um, I think I wore every hat except for uh, let's, every every hat except for <laughs> head of engineering or CTO, um, and so that required me to very quickly adapt and and learn that. Um, and that was really my, my first job I ever really had. So didn't really have any kind of, um, bias going into starting IQ. So kind of initially assume that, you know, first days are, you kind of settle into your role. And, and so for the first you know few years I was, um, running the product team and, uh, the product team finally reached a point where I just, it, it was time for me to hand that, to, to hire someone better than me for that role. Um, and that to me was it took a while and then it, from moving from product into the growth side of things. So how do we scale the business? How do we remove all the blockers to getting customers signed up on the Haikyuu platform and, um, and, and building that team out and the initial bones for that and, and 
developing like that go-to-market playbook and then having to again reach the point where it was time to hand over the the reins and hire someone better than myself um and i think that's the that's the number one big learning i got from high q that was it's a very hard pill to swallow because it feels as though you're being replaced but in reality it's it's you've done such a good job of building out the infrastructure it's time to now pour gas in the fire no differently than when you're going to invest in marketing like you got to you got to spend money to make money in this case it's you know you got to you got to spend or, or i guess put the right talent in the right place to be able to scale it beyond what you can originally do and i think you know at scope now it's very similar it's like the the job that i have is to help essentially stand up different parts of the organization and then find the best player to take it over um, and just be very comfortable with knowing what I know and, and the things I don't know, be more than okay to hand those things off and delegate those. Um, because I think that's the, that's the real, that's the real power I see in being, um, you know, a good CEO and um, being able to build a, a big successful business is, is make sure you've got the right players in place um, and just be honest with yourself about it. And I think, self-awareness is is another really big thing that comes along with that yeah yeah there's the 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 framing that the ego has is i'm being replaced or i'm no longer needed or Mm -hmm. like this person's better than me what is what is my role here even anymore um but then the other uh, the other framing is making yourself more and more irrelevant so that you can go more and more meta on like looking at where the company is going and seeing the needs that nobody else may see because they're doing all the things that you are delegating to them and better than you would have on your own. That's exactly right. Yeah. I'm curious. um, hmm, Okay. So, so how, how did you learn this about, about the ego? Was this just something that you picked up along the way because of the, the forces that were acting upon you or did you have some kind of mentorship or training I think it's all the above. Um, I think it requires an out, an external person to to let you know that you know there's maybe a certain trait that's being shown that you then, and if you trust that person, then you know you you accept their feedback. Um, mm-hmm. And I've had a handful of people that I I think have been super helpful in that regard. Not just about the ego thing, but just as far as like mentors and um, you know guidance. Uh, but having surrounding yourself with people that you can trust their feedback. Um, I think that's mission critical to being able to identify the weak spots that you might have. And, and, um, if you do lack some self-awareness, which everybody does in some way, uh, having them help you kind of point out those, those flaws that may be inhibiting your ability to kind of level up and and reach the next level. Mm -hmm. How have you built that into the company's culture? and permissioned that kind of self introspection and checking each other's blind spots in your management. Yeah. I think the, the number one thing is just like consistent open feedback, um, in, in giving people the space to make mistakes and in being honest about why things didn't work or, or why, you know, why things failed. Um, but it's about being honest, as to why, either why you do things or or why we do things or whoever it might be, um, 
and just making it very black and white and saying, okay, well, um, you know, this was an idea that you maybe had, or this was a way you reacted, but like, why did, why was that? Why did we do that? Or why did you do that? Um, and then hearing out the thinking behind it and getting down to like the root cause of it. Cause that's really what a lot of the actions that either that, that are ego-based or are kind of even just related to, you know, building products. It's like being very, um, being very clear as to why and being very, um, um, trying to think of the best word here, but being very conscious of, of the actions and then identifying the outcomes or the effects um, that those actions might have. And, and again, just being very, very clear with why something is done and going beyond the, the surface layer of the actual thing and going much deeper into understanding, like why is that something that you would do? Or why is that a product investment we should make? Or why should we go into this particular direction? Um, and I think understanding the why is the most important piece to it. And so we, we, we do a lot of that here. Yeah. Yeah. It's important getting, getting down to the root cause. Like, mm -hmm. what is it, what is it that somebody thinks this feature is going to do for the product or what are they afraid we're going to lose by not having totally. it? Mm -hmm. Uh, what are they afraid they're going to lose by not having, not being the person who suggested it or, you know, all the other different things that can happen, you know, like somebody, somebody could Somebody could uh, really push for a feature simply because they mentioned it once and it seemed like a good idea to a bunch of people and then they really want to see something that they created be implemented mm -hmm. and then lose track of, you know, whether or not it actually, you know, battle tests uh, all the or way even, through to being useful. Yeah, or, or even more in particular, it's, you know, um, it's, I mean, this is a... a very black and white example but it's like okay well why did you hit them it's like well they made me mad it's like okay well but why why do they make you mad it's not just being mad like that's the that's the emotion yeah, what, but, what makes but what the, makes anger arise in you right now and exactly what, is, right. what is behind that and what is it that you care exactly. about that that's exactly right that this brought up mm -hmm. yeah beautiful so where do you where do you see scope going in the next six to twelve months yeah, I mean, we're going to keep growing. Um, we've got some new uh, go-to-market strategies that we've been testing out over the last quarter, the first quarter here that have been, we've seen some really good early signs of success. Um, and then just how we're going to realign our, our metrics and our, and our goals around that um, from not only like a go-to-market strategy, but also from just the product strategy as well. Um, and I think if we can keep doing that, keep iterating on it, you know, that that plan of, of continuous kind of understanding why and, and planning um, and just being open to, you know, new twists and turns that we learn from our customers and our vendors and our experts and, and you know, having them use the product and, um, you know, get extreme success out of it. That's, that's, it could be six months, 12 months, but that's kind of the marching orders for indefinitely. So it could be a week, could be six months, but it's, it's the same. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for this conversation, Xander. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Great meeting you.